This is the word of God from Deuteronomy 7. For you are a holy people to the Lord, your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of the peoples who are on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than the other nations. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Know therefore that the God, your God, he is God, the faithful God who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments, but repays those who hate him to their faces to destroy them. He will not delay with him who hates him. He will repay him to his face. Therefore you shall keep the commandments and statutes and the judgments which I am commanding you today to do them. This is the word of God. And as you're turning to Romans chapter 8, let me pray for this time especially. God, I pray as I come to your word now that you would guard my mouth from any presumption or any error or any foolishness, God. Help me to speak only that which you have spoken to us. I pray that your people would understand the sense of what you have said, that they would understand and, and embrace and be transformed also by this truth. Give us help now, dear Lord. We need your spirit to guide our minds and hearts into the truth. We need your spirit to help us believe it. And we pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> I hope you're also praying in your hearts that the wind stays low. That's helpful too. So last week, as we're, we've been going through Romans chapter 8, we looked last week at the idea that life is not random. Life is not just a series of cause and events, cause and effect events. But life is actually a woven together plan of God that has a predetermined outcome for the people who love him. That we would, throughout life's complexities and ups and downs, we will become conformed to Jesus Christ. That's the plan of God. That's his predestining purpose for your life if you love him. Nobody lift up a sail or we'll all get to the rapture right now. Holy smokes. So this week as we continue on, we are, uh, we're looking at some inside baseball here. We get to see how God does this. We get to see a behind the scenes look at our salvation the blueprint and the plan from start until finish. So we're in Romans 8, starting in verse 30. Only three verses this morning. I'm going to start actually at verse 29, because it just gives the completeness of the sentence. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. <clears throat> That's where we left off. And these, 
Whom he predestined, he also called. And those who he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he also not freely give us all things? <clears throat> I've been re periodically reminding you that Romans contains about seven or eight of the top ten most controversial and contentious Christian doctrines in all of the Bible. It's a roadmap for the most difficult and yet important doctrines of our faith. And we are just getting in some ways to the top of the roller coaster. And I hope we're all strapped in because we're about to go on a ride through some of the most debated and, as I said, contentious issues in the church as we go through chapter 9, 10, and 11. So this is really an appetizer uh, for that. This is, uh, this is controversy light. I hope that you are, uh, your heart is open to what the scriptures say, uh, because if, if this morning is difficult, the next two months are also going to be very difficult. So praying that your heart is primed and humble to accept what God has, and also that that's all that I say. I don't want to go beyond what the scriptures say. This passage has been called by many the golden chain. The golden chain. chain I, I did not plan that. I am going to use this as a prop. The golden chain. The only thing you need to know about this is that each chain is only connected to the previous chain and the chain ahead of it. And thusly, there is one end connected to the other. You all know how a chain works. I'm glad that was here. This, that's a steel chain. This morning we're looking at the golden chain, the divine chain, the chain that produces in you an eternal destiny with God. So conformity to Christ's image is our future. We looked at that last week. We will be conformed to look like Jesus Christ. But we're not there yet. There's nobody here that I know of besides my own wife, who, all, who already perfectly embodies the image of Christ. Okay, not even Shannon's there yet, but we, we are all on our way there. And so we see this chain come out of the text that shows us the starting point and then each step in between until we get to that predestination, that preordained destination. There are four elements to this chain that all spring forth out of one category. That category is in verse 29. Those whom he foreknew. That's the category. That's the pool of people from which this chain springs. The second word in our, and I'm in the New American Standard, the second word is, and these. These, that word these points back to those whom God foreknew. So the group of people that God foreknew are included in this chain. It's like getting on a train at station one and then the doors don't open again until you get to your destination. Those who get on don't get off until the train 
enters the station. These whom he predestined, he also called. We looked at predestining last week, and I, and I briefly mentioned that this idea of foreknowledge to foreknow, some people will describe as God kind of gazing into the glass of the future and seeing what would happen. And in his divine foreknowledge, he responds to what we will eventually do. I don't think that's the thrust of this passage. I think that's far too weak an emphasis for what this passage is telling us. The first thing we need to recognize is that this foreknowledge is not a foreknowledge of events. It says, these whom he foreknew. These are people that God foreknew. This is a foreknowledge of an intimate quality. God has known his own people from time past, from time eternity past. He didn't just look ahead and see, well, I know who's going to be president in 2021. He said, I know those who are mine. It's an intimate knowledge. It's a loving knowledge. It's a knowledge which sets apart, as we read in Deuteronomy, I loved you out of the nations that were around you. It's a distinguishing intimate knowledge. Ephesians chapter 1 makes this actually crystal clear, written by the same author under the, uh, under the force of the Holy Spirit. Paul also wrote, He chose us before the foundation of the earth. He chose us. That is people. He chose us. As Jesus reminded his disciples, you did not choose me, but I chose you, in case you forgot. I hope that really settles the issue for you in terms of who belongs to God. The simple answer is those whom God chose to belong to him. It works the same today as it did in the Old Testament with Israel. God chose them because he loved them. That's why. Not because they were more numerous than their surrounding people. Not because they were more magnificent. They were nothing. Just like you and I are before God. There is no reason that God should have chosen me by worldly standards. I did nothing to earn God's choosing in my life. But I believe it with all my heart because it rests upon him. And so we see this idea that those whom he predestined, he also called. I just want to go through these other four elements to help bring them out. So when God pre-decided and pre-selected and foreknew these peoples, how do we know that God gets what God wants? How do we know that God would ultimately get his own way? Because he made everything. If you've ever been on a playground and had to choose teams for your kickball or your soccer game, you see the whole class in front of you, and you know who you want, right? You know who the best player is. You know who the best goalie is. You know who the slowest kid is. And you're choosing the order of your calling. But you know what happens? There's another team, and they've got their eye on the same people. So every time... The selection goes back to the other team. One of your good players gets taken. 
Is that what it's like for God? He sort of, he decides who he would like, but ultimately they have the freedom to go to whichever team they choose. Is that how his predestination works? Well, if this passage is true, then no, it doesn't work that way. Because God does something to make sure that those whom he foreknows, he will also justify. He will also gain for his team. And that word is he called. There is a calling that God issues to the people that he foreknew. God has selected his people from time past. And at a moment in history, he calls them. He calls them to come out of the world and into the light. You may remember your calling in God. You may remember when he called you out of darkness. And you ask, well, how does God call? Did you hear his voice? Did a paper airplane bean you in the side of the head with the gospel on it? I don't know how God called you particularly, but I know that there are, there's a call that we need to pay attention to, and it's also in Romans 10. It says, how, how will they believe in whom they have not heard? And the thrust of the passage is we need preachers and evangelists to share the gospel. That's the call of the gospel. But you might say, well, then why do so many reject the call of the gospel? Why do so many reject the command of Scripture to believe and obey? That's what many have called the outward call, the the vocal the call of the gospel that you can hear and see. Some call it a general call. It's the John 3.16. Whoever believes will not perish. That's the general call of the gospel. But there is also a secondary call. There's what they call an inward call. Other theologians have called it the effectual call. The call that affects you. The call that drags you out of your deadness and pulls you into the light. And you say, well, how are you getting all this from the text? I want to take you briefly to John 6. John 6 helps us. Jesus acknowledges to his listeners that this is the most one of the most controversial sermons that he preaches. John 6:35 says about this call, I am the bread of life, and he who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. All that the Father gives me, verse 37, all that the Father gives, that's the choosing, come to me. Every single person that God chose comes to Christ. All of them. That's why it's a golden chain. There's no loss in between. And he who comes to me, I will never cast out. And then notice how Jesus responds to their reaction. Do not grumble among yourselves. Don't grumble at this. And then Jesus doubles down in verse 44. In fact, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. And after this sermon, it says that many left him 
And Jesus said to his disciples, will you leave also? It's a hard doctrine. Jesus admitted it. And they said, there's nowhere else we can go. You only, Jesus, have the words of eternal life. What is Jesus saying? He's saying that God has chosen his people and that if God has not drawn you to Christ, you cannot come to Christ. You are not able and I am not able unless we are drawn by God. That's the effectual call. That's the inward call. That's the call where God sees you and calls your name like he did Lazarus out of the grave. And we come to him and we receive life. Jesus says, I will not cast out any. Anyone who comes to me, I will save. But the only ones who come are the ones who are drawn. I have to say to you, if you are far from God this morning, if you do not know Christ this morning, you must cry out to God to draw you to Christ. Otherwise, you will not come. Only God can do it. Some have called this an irresistible grace. A grace that when you are called, you cannot resist it. When you see the truth of who Christ is, it is impossible to deny it. It is impossible to stay away. Jesus said it this way of the calling. My sheep hear my voice and they come. Have you thought about that? When the voice of the shepherd goes out, the sheep come in. I don't know who all those sheep are, but Jesus said, I have many sheep that are not of this fold. I need to go find them because they're out there. And when they hear my voice, they're going to come because the Father is going to draw them. Wow. That's where your security lies. If you are in Christ, it's because God drew you to him. Not because you made a you know, a distinctly rational evaluation and you took all the data and you made the best decision. Do you remember when God called you? Do you remember crying out to God in repentance? That's good. But I want you to understand that that happened after God called you. That happened after he put his spirit in you. Your cry of faith is the first sign of your new life. And so it says, those whom he called, he also justified. We've looked at justification a lot in this book. We see in Romans 5 verse 1, it says, therefore having been justified by faith. So we need to recognize in between these two steps, calling and justification, we put our faith in Christ. This is not to say your faith in Christ is of no consequence. Of course it is. When God calls you, you put your trust and your faith in Jesus. And you are justified on the basis of the faith that you put in Christ, not upon your works. So there are steps in between. Each one of these five points are like knuckles on a finger. And there's a joining ligament in between each knuckle. So in between your calling and your justification is your faith. It's not mentioned there, but we know from Scripture that your faith is integral to this process. I love how Colossians chapter 2 describes your justification. Listen to this. You were dead, and he made you alive together with Christ, having forgiven your sins. That's what your justification sounds like. 
Your sins are forgiven. All of them. Canceling the certificate of death, which consisted of decrees written against you. If you were to sit down and write out all of your sins that you could ever think of, that would be like one one hundredth, one one thousandth of all the decrees against you. We have no hope of standing before God without the doctrine of justification where he says, I've canceled the certificate. Your debt is paid. You are no longer a child of darkness, but a child of light. Psalm 32, 1 says, Blessed is the one whose sins are forgiven and against whom the Lord does not count iniquity. Blessed is the one that God looks at and says, I'm not going to hold their sin against them because I've placed that burden upon Jesus Christ. So we are justified now. Your justification is not something you wait for until heaven. You live with a clean conscience before God now. It's why when somebody accuses you of sin in Christ, the Christian thing to do is to admit and accept that you have sinned because you're not held accountable to God for that any longer. We don't live in shame anymore. We don't live in fear of our sins being exposed because we are justified. God has exposed all of our sin. He's already exposed it all and he's dealt with it faithfully. So justification, it yields our, our peace with God. It yields our harmony with, with one another. And it releases us into joyful service of God. We don't serve God shamefully or with hesitation. We do so freely. So those whom he justified, he also glorified. He glorified. This is written in the past tense, in the same tense as all the other portions of this salvation. This is what they call a proleptic description. Pro means in advance, and lepto means to take, to take hold of it in advance. Our glorification is already secure. It is already won. It is already finished in the eyes of God. But it is a future reality for us now, isn't it? 1 John 3 says, when we see him, we will be like him. Our glorification will happen in the future when Jesus appears again in the flesh. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 says, we will all be changed in the twinkling of an eye when Christ appears. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, We are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. We are moving from states of glory into greater states of glory. And then Philippians 3.21 says, Christ will transform the body of our humble estate into conformity with the body of His glory. You are destined for glorification in your body to loose and to shed the humble state of your current body. We're not going to body shame here, but we all know that we are far from glory. 
Our bodies are tired. They're cumbersome. They're addicted. They are disobedient to the will of God very often. But we are being transformed, looking forward to glory. This is the final step of your salvation, is your glorification. So as we summarize that, I want to look at one major point that I want you to take away. This is the summary of your salvation, that God is the one who is working. Did you see how the emphasis comes out in the text? He predestined. He called. He justified. He glorified. God receives all the credit for your salvation and your glorification. He did it all. I'm using a lot of kind of theology words this morning. You don't have to remember them. If they stick, that's great. But this is the idea of salvation being monergistic. Mono meaning single, of one source. Not synergistic. We don't partner with God to save ourselves. Any more than Lazarus partnered with God, with Jesus, to come out of the tomb. He was already alive when he came out. Jonah 2.7 says, I will say, salvation belongs to the Lord. It belongs to him. He chose, he called, he justified, he glorified. God is totally sovereign. That's what that means. God is totally in charge. God plans and then God executes his plan without any opposition, any successful opposition. We'll touch on that in just a moment. Does this mean that God's commandments are not relevant to you? No. I'll attend to them. We've never said that. We don't believe that. But salvation is what activates us into obedience. But what the emphasis of this text is, is that God has done it all without our permission and without our help. And that's not to insult you, that is to encourage you. God did not need your help to save you. He did not even need your permission to save you. This doctrine, if you're not offended this morning, this won't make sense to you, but this doctrine is greatly offensive to many people because you are powerless in your salvation. You are not a determining factor in your salvation. That can be offensive. But it ought to be encouraging because it, we should see that if anything were dependent on us, it would have failed. If any part of this chain was placed on your shoulders... That's where the chain would have broken. You know the saying, a chain is only as strong as its weakest link? That's why God didn't make you any of the links. He is all of the links. There are no weak links. The golden chain is golden. If anything depended on you, it would not have happened. This doctrine is hated by people who put God on an equal footing with man. God is not equal to us. We are not equal to him. He is over us. We're going to look at that in Romans 9 a little bit more. He is the creator. We are the creation. But this doctrine is cherished 
and loved and embraced by desperate, humble sinners who know that only God can pull them out of their sin. This is God's love to his people. This love is not a passive emotion. I read from a commentator this week, who's, I'll quote, saying, this love is not a passive emotion. It is an active volition, and it moves determinatively to nothing less than the highest conceivable goal for his adopted children, conformity to the image of his only begotten son. God's love for you elevates you to the highest possible goal that you could ever reach. That is conformity to Jesus' image. That is your glorification. And so as we close, I'll ask the question Paul asked. What then shall we say to this? What do we do with this? You know, a lot of... Um, Maybe you're used to preaching or, or churches or whatever that would give you sort of like 10, 10 steps to something better each week or 10 ways to control your temper. and That doesn't sound like this sermon at all. And so the, the question is asked, what should we say to this? What do we do? Well, I want to make two points. One of them is my point and one of them is Paul's point. And I think they're both from Scripture is that number one, your walk as a Christian life depends on everything God has said. Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of God's mouth. So my goal is for us to know all of the scriptures. And this might sound like high-level doctrine that doesn't affect your daily life, but I think God would argue with you by saying, you are living off of these words. When Paul left the, uh, the Ephesian elders in the book of Acts, he said, I did not shrink back from declaring to you everything in the counsel of God. Maybe you're sitting here today saying, I don't know how to apply this sermon. The Holy Spirit is working this into your heart to endure for Jesus' sake. And Paul's point in verse 31 says... What shall we say to these things? How would we conclude this doctrinal summary? What do we do with the golden chain? If God is for us, who can be against us? That's the point. If God loved you from eternity past, he will love you into eternity future. God did not spare his own son. By the way, the golden chain is dipped in the blood of Christ. The golden chain only happens because Jesus paid the price to save you, to include you in that group. The Bible also says that Jesus was slain before the foundation of the world. Why? Because we were chosen before the foundation of the world. Both were known by God in eternity past. If you were going to be foreloved by God, then Christ had to be foreslain by God. He delivered him up for your salvation. How 
Will that God not give you all things? And when he says all things, he's talking about your glorification. Your destiny is pre-booked. It is prepaid. God is not going to leave the check on your table. He has loved you fully in Christ. God has not left you with a half-empty gas tank that will come rattling empty two kilometers before the filling station. He has fully satisfied the conditions for your future glorification. God has loved you. And we're going to look at next week all of the different obstacles that would come against this plan and how none of them are of any account. They're of no concern to the Christian. It doesn't mean we don't live through them, but there's no eternal concern. And I just want to leave you with two more verses. And I've already read one from John 6. This is how Jesus put it. Of all that the Father gives me, I lose none. None. Are you in Christ? Then you will not be lost. In fact, the only moment where Jesus himself was not holding on to the security of your salvation was during the three days that he was dead. And do you know what he did before he died? He prayed in John 17 to the Father. He said, keep them in your name. The only moment where Jesus was not holding on to your security, he said to God, I need you to hang on to them for a few days so that Satan will win none of them. Jesus said, I will lose none. Think of your children. Will they come finally to glory in Christ? Jesus said, if they come to me, I will not lose them. Philippians 1, 6 says, He who began the good work in you will bring it to completion. God does not start projects and leave them unfinished like I do at my house. I finally just put the finishing touches on my front porch. But man, was it hard to discipline myself to do it because I was like, it's already functional. It already works. The gate already swings. I don't need little fancy caps on top. But I did them. God is not like me, though. He finishes every project he starts perfectly. This forms the foundation for you to face every obstacle that you will face, whether it's accusations, whether it's physical deprivation or imprisonment or sickness or satanic attack. You can face them all. Your foundation is set. Every possible reality that we face must answer to the power and purpose of God expressed in your life. This is my final thought. God's purposes don't just take place up in the heavenlies. God's purposes take place concretely in your life. As surely as God has set the orbit of the planets 
God has set his salvation in his own children, which cannot be thwarted. You think, man, well, I'm a pretty fickle person. I often want to walk away from God. I'm often tempted to bail out. Well, have you yet? No, it's because God is holding you. God is preserving the promise of his golden chain unto glorification. We're going to close in prayer, and we're going to sing about that future glorification in our final song. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the assurance of your...